0: Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Galatians chapter 5. That's where we are today, Galatians chapter 5. We're in a series that's taking us through the the book of Galatians chapter by chapter, and today, Galatians 5. And here's the key concept this morning. Let the Spirit reap His harvest in you. Let the Spirit reap His harvest. Now, when we think of Galatians chapter 5, you think of the fruit of the Spirit, and the bulk of our lesson today is going to be uh, spent looking at that portion of Galatians 5 where Paul tells us about the fruit of the Spirit, the harvest that the Spirit wants to raise up in us. But before we go there, I'd like to scan with you the earlier sections of the chapter to get a sense of the Apostle Paul's flow of thought. Because you could say that the entire letter to the Galatians Is a treatise on freedom. Freedom from the tyranny of legalism, that we've been noting that through the first four chapters, as well as freedom to live in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And freedom is the key word in our world today. Freedom. Every day, as we watch the violence unfold in Ukraine, we are reminded that freedom is valuable. And worth fighting for. The people of that nation were once bound by communist ideals. And they do not want to be forced back into that oppression. They do not want to live in a regime that silences opinion. Where the centralized state is all powerful. Thus they fight today for their right to be free. Back in 2020 we saw the same uh, desire uh, exemplified in the streets of Cuba. In that uh, regime, they were protesting the government, expressing their desire to be free, and those protests were quickly snuffed out by that regime. But the passion for freedom remains, so much so that often our coast guard picks up dangerously crowded rafts of people on homemade uh, boats seeking to drift across to the U.S. and find asylum there. I read about a, one couple way back in 1966, an automatic an auto mechanic by the name of Loriano and his wife Consuelo. They made a break on a makeshift aluminum kayak that they had spent months collecting scrap metal, f- forming the kayak. They could barely squeeze themselves in, and on a moonless night in 1966, they set off heading for the United States to seek freedom. And they floated in the open, uh, open waters for 70 hours— they suffered from thirst and exposure and eventually they were rescued by our Coast Guard and they made this comment. He said, We thought going into the ocean and risking death or being eaten by sharks is a million times better than suffering without freedom. Many have done that. We know their story because they were, they were rescued in their boat that they fashioned now is on display in the Mariners Museum in Newport News, Virginia. But people long to be free. Now, the Galatians' freedom is threatened. But what threatens the Galatians' freedom is an idea. And it's the idea that says, in addition to placing my faith in Jesus Christ, if I just work hard enough, if I make exacting lists and check off the right duties and the right behaviors, if I am part of the right rituals, then I will gain God's favor. I need to add all those works to faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul is writing the book of Galatians to say that'll never work. It's not meant to work because the rules and the, and the rituals that you think are going to free you in fact will trap you and they will be a demonstration in you of the sinfulness within us. Why? Because inevitably ritual and rules become means of comparison and judgmentalism. So Paul in the early chapters is warning them against, going backwards into the law, into legalism. And as he begins chapter 5, he's emphasizing that once again. He's emphasizing what not to be. And the very first thing he says in chapter 5 is, don't be a legalist, a slave to the law. Let's pick up the reading, chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Don't be a slave to the law. Believer, you have been set free. What have you been set free from? From the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and also from what he calls the yoke of legalism. And that image would be meaningful to those he's writing to. The yoke, the neck harness worn by the oxen as the oxen pulls the cart It's a graphic image. Paul is saying, don't go back into that kind of bondage again. You're set free in Jesus Christ. Rejoice in your freedom. Don't be a legalist. But he also, in the beginning sections of chapter 5, says, don't be a libertine. A libertine is a person unrestrained by morals, unrestrained by the principles of righteousness. Look at verse 13. Just scan there. It says, you, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, rather serve one another in love. There Paul is addressing a question. Is it possible to overdo this idea of freedom? And the answer is yes. Don't be a legalist, but don't be a libertine, a libertine who lives as if there are no limits, who lives as if there are no guidelines. Christian freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin without penalty. Freedom in Christ is not licensed to sin. Use your freedom to bless others, because if you don't use your freedom that way, if you use it just to live a reckless, sinful life, it's a different kind of slavery, but it's slavery nonetheless. You'll become a slave to your own appetites, a slave to your own habits and your hang-ups. Christ, through the Holy Spirit, has set you free, and now the Holy Spirit wants to raise up a new harvest in you. The harvest, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, that's what should be blooming in your life. That's what should be obvious about your life. It's not about the rules and regulations. It is about the fruit of the Spirit being demonstrated in the way that you live. So go down to verse 22, and there Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. These are the things that ought to be obvious about your life. These are the qualities. These nine qualities ought to stand out in the way that we live. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I want you to notice something about the way Paul expresses this. He calls this the fruit of the Spirit singular. All of these traits make up the elements that are the fruit of the Spirit. All of these characteristics is what, uh, what the Holy Spirit wants to produce in us. Picture the fruit of the Spirit like an orange. It's one fruit, but it has many sections, and these sections are the qualities that Paul is enumerating here, these nine characteristics. So, I, I, And I, I point that out because I think it's important that we banish any talk about the fruits. Of the Spirit. Because not only is that grammatically wrong, it is doctrinally dangerous. Because it's easy that that will lead us to the idea that says, well, I can pick and choose from these characteristics. You know, some I'll be good at, some not so much. You know, I I love joy and peace. I think I'll take those. That's great. But I don't need to worry about patience. I can skate by without patience. And Paul says, all of these characteristics, all together, are the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is something that is demonstrated in our life. It's how we live on the outside. It's what people in, it, it, who encounter us engage as they are in relationship with us. It is not acceptable to say, well, you know what? I'm patient on the inside. If on the outside, you're an obnoxious hothead. No. It's the way we are meant to live, the demonstration of the way we interact with others. It is the action of our life that counts. And we have a role in allowing the fruit of the Spirit to bloom in our lives. The Spirit has the power, but the the fruit blooms as we have the fertile soil of a cooperative heart. The fruit of the Spirit grows in the garden of obedience, and it takes effort to maintain the garden of obedience. The fruit of the Spirit grows in the garden of obedience. So let's review What God is looking for in us, in the way that we live, on the very top of the list, love. God is looking for love, the top characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit. You can be sure that that's first on the list for a reason, because that's the premier characteristic. The main aspect of what it means to allow the Holy Spirit to be evident and flowing through us is is love. Be a person of love. What does that mean? We use that word a lot. I don't know how many times today, but you can just maybe you can remember to count how many times today you'll say something like, I love that, or I love it, referring to all different kinds of things, all different kinds of objects and experiences or people. We love all kinds of stuff. And as such, we, we water down what we mean when we really encounter love as a characteristic of the Holy Spirit. It's important to understand, of course, we realize that Paul had a number of words at his disposal in the Greek language to, to, to uh, illustrate love, to speak the word of love, and the word that he chose, even though it is very common among Christian circles today, in his day, in his setting, it actually was a fairly rare word, that word agape, agape, this love that is based on a deliberate choice on the part of the lover. It's something that I choose to do. It's not based on the worthiness or the beauty of the object of love. It's based on a choice in my heart. It's loving selfishly, selflessly, I should say. It is is evidenced in God Himself. It's less a feeling, a tingle, and it's more a choice of my mind. Self-giving love. That's the first quality of the fruit of the Spirit. Love with others in mind. And living in love with others in mind shows in a million little actions that we put into practice every day, building worth and value and consideration to the other people around us, fruit of the Spirit is love. Jesus said in John thirteen thirty five. By this will all men know you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the identifying feature of the people of Jesus Christ. A rare and wonderful word, love. When John brings that word into Greek, from Jesus' Aramaic into Greek, he uses the word agape there, self-giving love. And when we live in self-giving love, being more and more like Christ, it will lead to joy. That's the second quality. Joy is intricately linked with love, the life of spirit-directed love. Joy is motivating. It carries you along. That's why it feels so good when you're doing the will of God, even when you're doing the will of God, and it's difficult, and it might call for sacrifice. But when I know that God has designed me to do this, and He's called me to take this action right here, right now, you feel the pleasure of the Father. And the pleasure of the Father is a sense of joy like no other. We find joy in Christ, and Jesus wants us to live in joy The Spirit wants to let joy flow through you and to be an obvious characteristic of who you are because you have been touched by the love of Jesus Christ. Every morning, 6 a.m., on 770, on your a.m. dial, we put out a radio show, and the name of it is Designed for Joy. And we do that on purpose. That's the title we've chosen, On Purpose, because God wants you to live in His joy. Listen to Jesus' words in John 16 Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Jesus wants our joy to be complete. He wants us to be filled with joy. John Piper, the author and pastor and teacher, made famous the line, God is most glorified in you as you are rejoicing in him. It's absolutely true. As we are rejoicing in our relationship with Jesus Christ, the world looks at that and says, that's something I don't have. You know, we don't want a bunch of morose, sad, sack, sad-faced sad Christians moping around. That's not attractive at all. But the joy of the Lord is attractive. And the Spirit wants to see that characteristic grown up as part of His fruit. And when you live a life of joy, Spirit-directed joy, you will have Spirit-saturated peace. That's what the Spirit Uh, spiritual life produces, the assurance that God knows me, the assurance that God sees me, that God is with me, that God loves me, the assurance that God hears me when I pray. And when I absolutely believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt, that brings a peace. In the night when the hurting thoughts come, God is right there and He's saying, You know what? I I see it. I hear it. I am here. And I will stay up so you can get some rest. That's peace. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Love breeds joy. I'm enjoying Christ. I'm enjoying my walk with Christ. I feel the pleasure of the Father, and that joy brings peace. The confident heart that knows God loves me and will take care of me. So I don't have to worry and fret and carry the burden of the world on my shoulders, because God is doing that. And when I have that kind of peace, depending upon God in that way, I can be patient. That's the next quality of the Spirit. I've heard it said that patience is something we admire most of the time, not all the time. Patience, it's something we admire greatly in the driver behind us, but not the gr- driver in front of us, right? Because of the record gas prices, I have become a patient driver. I drive in a slow lane, I drive the speed limit, I watch my RPMs to make sure I'm not using unnecessary gas. When the light is changing in the distance, I coast to the red light. It's true. And you know what i found? Drivers in Stockton don't like that. <laughs> I get all kinds of people zooming around me, and guess what? We sit at the light together still. Be a patient driver. Let patience bubble up into the way you drive. You know what? It's going to save you gas mileage there. Patience. I know I've said this before, but there, is, there was a quote once that I read on the bottom of a calendar. And it's one of those sayings that just kind of stuck with me. I can even visualize it on uh, the bottom of that, of, of that calendar as I flip the pages. And this was the quote. It said this, Never think that God's delays are God's denials. Hold on. Hold fast. Hold out. Patience is genius. I love that. Patience is genius because God is working and I can wait on him. Wait on his work. Wait on his timing. Holy Spirit, it's Holy Spirit directed endurance, if you will. And when I'm, when I'm patient in that way, in the confidence that God is working, and I can wait on His will and His work, that'll enable me to be kind. Kindness is the next aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Kindness. By kindness, we mean a disposition of graciousness. Commentary author Albert Barnes from generation ago, he describes it this way. He says, it is a mildness of temper, a calmness of spirit, an unruffled disposition that disposes us to make all around us as happy as possible. Kindness. Kindness is born of the same trust that gives birth to patience. Why? Because so very often we're not kind because we think, you know, if, if I am kind, I'm going to be taken advantage of people will use me. I have a sense of I'm all on my own here. And I got to make sure I get what's coming to me. And that attitude militates against kindness. But if I know that there's one who could be trusted to take care of me, if I know that he will always see me through and he has my best in mind and blessing comes from his hand, if I know that, then I can back away from that insistence of my own way and my own time and I can be kind, have a disposition to make others around me as happy as possible. Kindness, a predisposition to help, a predisposition to say yes. And it works itself out. When we have that predisposition, it works itself out in goodness, the next quality. Very close to kindness is goodness. But I think the difference is that goodness is the action that springs from kindness. I have the disposition of that, of that kind heart. I want to see people blessed around me. I want to bring joy and happiness in their life. And so I do the action that is good. God is good. and We are like God as we seek to do His good will. Tim Chester is an author, and, he, and he's reflecting on God's goodness, and he writes this. He says... The variety of the world's food is an example of God's goodness. The world is more delicious than it needs to be. I like that. You know, all the varieties of food, all the different tastes. We didn't need to have all that variety, but God gave it to us anyway. He's he's, he's a good God, and He wants our blessing, and He wants to be kind to us. Goodness is kindness in action. It's taking that predisposition and putting it to work actively blessing the people around us. Goodness. Faithfulness. Our God is faithful, and He wants us to be faithful. He's eternally faithful, and He calls His people to be His faithful ones. It's the quality of being reliable. Being where you said you'd be, when you said you'd be there. It's also being full of faith spiritually, full of faith in in what God is doing and has done in our lives, but also that carries itself out to being a person that people can depend on. Faithfulness, part of it at least means dependability. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, but we do know that God is already living in tomorrow. He already is there. We do know that He will be faithful to us, so we can be faithful to our commitments and faithful to our obligations. We can be dependable and reliable, remain true to Him and true to what we say and true to others. There's a perseverant quality to it, a diligence. Beyond human just stick-to-itiveness, there is a Spirit-inspired tenaciousness to demonstrate our faith by being faithful to others and the things that we say we will do beyond just the circumstances and then there's the quality of gentleness I wonder if the people around you in your life if they would use the word gentle to describe you sometimes it's tough to see gentleness in the way that we interact with others gentleness is a lot like meekness gentleness doesn't mean weakness it means using your strength in a controlled way. It's using the strength we have to bring tenderness, to bring healing and help to the relationships around us. Gentleness does not mean wimpy, it doesn't mean feeble. But it is a gracious and grand way to live where people will feel safe around us because they know that they're, they're going to encounter a gentle spirit, not to have their, you know, not be yelled at and not be criticized, not be belittled just for the things that they do or the differences that they demonstrate. The worldly attitude is, agree with me or I'm going to get in your face. Push me and I'm going to push you back ten times more. But spirit-inspired gentleness will bring a harmony within and a calm within that is demonstrated to others around us. The calm that places you where God wants you to be in supportive relationships, not combative Relationships. And it brings us to the last quality that Paul mentions self control. Self control. A spirit directed power to control our impulses, to control our behaviors, to be spirit directed. Some years ago, I'm sure you're familiar with the name of the reporter John Stozel. He was for a long time on the air. He used to do a lot of reporting on cultural issues uh, and that kind of thing. And one of the reports that he had, uh, he's speaking to a professor at Case Western Reserve University. And here's a quote from that interview with this professor who studied the issue of self-control. He said this, If you look at social problems that face people in the United States today, alcoholism, drug abuse, gambling, teen pregnancy, and so on, The majority of them have to do with the failure of self-control. Studies show that self-control produces success in life over the long haul. And he's just talking about the the personal quality of human-derived self-control. And he referred to a study that had been uh, done at Columbia University in the 1950s. They studied a group of children, and the test was could the children resist temptation control themselves in order to gain a reward downstream down later on, okay? And it had to do with not eating candy. Can you resist eating this candy in order to get a reward later on? And now they, they did that test on the people. They they. they took uh, note of who was able to resist temptation, who succumbed to the temptation, who was not demonstrating self-control, and they followed those children for the next 30 years. It's called a longitudinal study. And they, they followed those kids, and they, were, they tracked them in terms of how their lives went. And here's what they found. It was astonishingly clear. The kids who were able to resist temptation, to demonstrate self-control as children, grew up to be less likely to get into trouble with the law, less likely to get pregnant outside of marriage, less likely to develop damaging habits. They did better on their grades in school. They tested better in their SAT scores. They got into better colleges and generally achieved a higher level of living. Self-control. And that's just human self-control just makes sense to live that way. But the spiritual quality of spiritual self-control is the Holy Spirit power enabling you to resist, not being swept along by the tide of the crowd's ideas, not being swept along by popular opinion and the habits that corrupt. It's in essence being mature in the Spirit. Spirit Spirit-grown self-control is spiritual maturity. And these qualities are what God looks for. He's saying, this is the harvest that the Spirit wants to grow up in you. This is what I want to bloom in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the example of what the, the Spirit wants to harvest in us. And then Paul adds these words at the very end of verse 23. Against such things there is no law. Why does he say that? Why does he say it that way? What, what does he mean by that? Well, I think he means this. Laws exist for restraint, right? Speed limit laws restrain me from going too fast down the highway. But these aspects of living should never be restrained. You can never get too much of these, of this harvest. You can never overdo these qualities in your life. Live out these qualities in abundance in the way that you live and you're demonstrating the Spirit's presence in you. But also by... Uh, wording it that way, Paul is coming back to the main purpose of this letter, that he writes to the Galatian Christians against the Judaizers who are telling them they need to be under the domination of the law. He's saying, this is what the Holy Spirit wants to see. You don't have to add any more laws to this. Raise this harvest, and legalism will have no place in your life. Raise this harvest, and the liberty that is yours in Christ will not give way to sin, raise this harvest, allow the Spirit. Simply surrender more of yourself to the Spirit, and you will demonstrate this fruit, because this is what He wants to see in us. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the challenge that this brings us. We recall the fact that none of us is perfectly living according to the fruit of the Spirit. Oftentimes we struggle with various qualities, but It's good to be reminded what you're looking for. So, God, we pray that these qualities would be something we would actively think of. These elements would be something that we surrender to. And, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bloom this fruit in our life. Bless us as we seek to serve you. Help us represent you well. In Jesus' name, amen.